0: Good evening everybody. We are uh, just a couple of weeks out um, and so we are going to try to get as much as we can done on the issue of biblical literacy. And so hopefully you have your handout. Uh, It's just one page and so there's an even money chance I can get through this. Um, We are looking at the issue of biblical literacy and so obviously, if I were to ask you how important it is that someone be literate, be able to read, um, how, how valuable is that? How many of you taught your children how to read, right? Yeah, you just, this is an important thing. You can't, you, you can't go through life without being able to read. Um, my, my, my son, who is actually in the room right now, uh, was, was, was the only of our three children that was a, was a good reader, that read well. Um, Matt was probably in the third or fourth grade at the time, maybe fourth or fifth grade. And I, I remember telling him that if he could figure out a way before he goes to middle school to be reading, they had, they had, they had these tests, and uh, you kind of, you read, and you just read more, and then you read more, and then you read more, and then you take a test, and it would evaluate at the, your reading level, you know. And I never really liked to read as a kid, and so I admire my wife, who loves to read, and I admired my son, I took him one time with me to Carbondale, Illinois. We were living in Joplin, and I drove to Carbondale, Illinois, about seven hours drive. And uh, after I was done speaking at that conference that week, um, we stopped by Barnes & Noble, and he got to pick out some books to read. And so he would have been probably in the third grade, Matt. Matthew, I'm talking. Were you in the third grade? <laughs> you blocked out that part of your life. I think he was in third or fourth grade. It was just weird. He would, he would set his alarm in, like when he was in the second grade. At like five in the morning so we could wake up to read. Okay? That's just weird. And uh, so we're at Barnes & Noble, and he picks out these books. And then we get in the car, and I drive. And we stopped in Rolla, Missouri at the Burger King. And he, we, I, but I kept on driving. And so he ate that cheeseburger. And other than eating that cheeseburger, he didn't stop reading for almost eight straight hours. It was just Weird. And I remember going, son, I, I hope you have friends when you get older, because right now you just like books. And, but it was one of those things, he just loved to read, just loved to read. His mom loves to read, just loves to read. And so I told him, I said, if you could figure out a way to be reading at the college level before you go into middle school, I'll give you 100 bucks. And he did it. It's like, wow, reading at the college level in the fifth grade. Um, he's not reading at the college level anymore, but there was a time. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, But here's the part was, you know, Andrea and I, and Andrea more than me, honestly, Andrea did a much better job than I did, just valuing our children need to read. And not only do they need to read, they need to like books. And if not, life will just be more difficult for them, right? It's not about being smart. It's just, it's about a lot of different things. The world opens up. Like, do you get the value of reading? You just do. Um, Ryan Vincent loves to tease my youngest son, who does not like to read, does not have his brother's love for it. And Ryan Vincent would always tell Maxwell all the time, you will never fully know who God is. You'll never fully understand his his plan and his purposes for you until you enjoy reading, particularly the Bible, you know. And I think sometimes we're afraid to admit that. We're afraid to say that. And so we want to kind of go after that a little bit. And not only that, but um, I love to give away Bibles. And so I have still a bunch from a, a recent endeavor that I had to a bookstore. And so i got two more copies of the wonderful English Standard Version, one in brown and one in, the, so they're not like t-shirts, so you have to say, yes, I'm a large, you don't have to do that. Um, it's, it's not, they're not large print, so for those of you that are going, no, actually, I need a large print. Um, I have a brown and a, and a black version of the ESV that's kind of nice. I'm going to give my good friend, which color do you want? Okay. And then I'll, TJ, I'll give you this one here, brother. So... I, uh, it's, I, don't, I, I don't really mind. I mean, we put the, the word of God on the screen, and that's not a bad thing. I, I spend a lot of time reading on my iPhone and don't apologize for that at all. I mean, Paul didn't even have that. <laughs> I think Paul would went, wow, really? Like, I could have it everywhere I went just on this device, and I could just go around everywhere in the Bible? That's amazing. Paul wouldn't go, oh, I wish it were paper. He wouldn't say that. He would be okay with the way that it was. And so however you get it, it's good. But I do love actually just holding a book, holding a book in my hand so that I can read those things. So um, hopefully you'll, you'll grow in this love. But I'm, 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 I'm tonight not going to talk about how do we love the Word of God more? How do, we, how do we cause our hearts to become moved by that? We'll talk about that more next week. But what I want to talk about tonight is um, a, a very uh, uh, overarching, kind of a foundational view or an overarching view of just how we need to view or understand the scriptures. And so um, I, when I usually teach this, and I do quite regularly around here, teach biblical interpretation, it ta- usually takes me about 16 weeks to walk all through this. And I'm going to do it tonight. So for some of you that have heard this for the 15th millionth time, um, please just let this kind of be a great reminder to you. And to, be, to, to recommit yourself to these, to, these, to these deep biblical truths about why the Bible is important and how important it is that we take seriously the studying of the word of God. So I want to, I've, I've labeled this, uh, this discussion tonight, the art and the science of biblical literacy. And it truly is both. There is a science element to it. I'm going to be kind of talking about some very specific things that you need to know, like blocking and tackling. Um, This is a, a basic piece, and if you don't get this, you probably won't get anything else. So there are some scientific in that sense. In that use of that term, this kind of a, the X's and O's. Yeah, we, you need to know these things. But then there's also like an artistry to it. There really is. There are, there are Bible interpreters. There are Bible communicators that somehow are able to see things. And, and by the way, I always give the Holy Spirit since he wrote the Bible. Um, that is the breathing of God. Uh, I believe I, I, the best thing that you can do to seek understanding is to ask God to give it to you. Okay? So I, I never want to make light of that. My, uh, my in-laws, who I will see here uh, in the next little while, uh, back in Canada, I've, I've told you this, I mean, my, and my wife knows about her parents. They're charismatic, and her dad is uh, lovey, loves the Lord a lot, and, um, but just, he, he leans on the side when I'm talking about the science of biblical interpretation, he leans on the side of, Jim, why don't you trust the Holy Spirit more? Why don't you let the Spirit lead you in that understanding? And I, I, I hear them, and I, I probably should even hear them more. I mean, I, I, maybe I do rely too much on my understanding and on the Greek text. I, w- I want to be able to hear that. I really do, because the Holy Spirit knows far more than I will ever know, um, because he's God. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one that gives these things, and I don't want to make light of that at all. But to prove that how the Holy Spirit works, sometimes we make some silly assumptions. And so when we were having this conversation with my father-in-law, I pointed to a particular text in the book of Ephesians where the Greek text doesn't really tell us whether or not it is an objective genitive or a subjective genitive, meaning is it faith in Christ or is it Christ's faith in this one particular verse? And so I asked him, Can you can you tell me dad? Like, why don't you ask the Holy Spirit? And because I haven't found anyone, as far as I know, the Holy Spirit has never given divine revelation about whether or not that's an objective or subjective genitive. So what do you do with that? And, and I, I was just trying to want him to hear that it's, it's never the Holy Spirit or Jim's study. I, I'm so indebted to Mark Scott who taught me, it is the Holy Spirit at work in me when I study. And by the way, the Holy Spirit doesn't need me to study to work. So don't, I'm not saying that at all. That, my op, the other side of that is not. Because if I don't study, the Holy Spirit won't do anything. No, I don't believe that actually. Holy Spirit will do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. It is the wind, right? It is like the wind. But the Bible seems to tell us quite regularly: take up and read. Study this, devote, meditate on this, pour out over this. And so I want to make sure that I will give at least the Word of God more attention than I will the Miami hurricanes this weekend. And I need to give the, the Word of God more in more, more attention than any hobby or all of my hobbies combined. And so if I seem to be able to take the time to do other things to study and learn and to do well in my job, right? Then does the word of God not demand and not warrant such intentionality? So really, I, I want you to i want you to hear that. I want that to kind of hit you hard. Um, for those of you that kind of lean on your own understanding, the Holy Spirit. And for those of you that are using the Holy Spirit as a way to not study, then that's not... That's, that's not biblical either. It truly isn't biblical. Read Psalm 119, by the way. is a great one for you. We're not going to look at it tonight, but read Psalm 119, and uh, just, to, just it'll overwhelm you with how much the Word of God is, is, is powerful and helpful. So why do we read and why do we want biblical literacy? It's, it's essentially reading to both know and then to live properly. So we study the Bible in order to learn how to interpret and apply biblical truth. And we'll break down a little bit more that interpreting and applying idea. This, by the way, to interpret and apply the Bible in a God-honoring way, both glorifies God and benefits us simultaneously. We glorify God when we know him well, when we worship him well. If somebody was sitting here on Sunday and they were worshiping a God who loved them no matter how they lived their lives, even though they were a terrible person and they were doing all of this stuff, but in the end, God didn't care, and that's what they were celebrating. You know, God was not glorified in that because it's not true. Now, God does love them, don't get me wrong, but God's not glorified in them staying in their sin, and that's not how he's glorified. He's glorified by the truth, isn't he? They will worship me in spirit and in truth, the Bible teaches And so therefore, to know God and to know the truth about him that we find from the scriptures, this is how we are changed, and that glorifies God, and these things happen simultaneously. So you've heard me do this a million times, um, and I just want to say it one more time. Orthodoxy is doctrine. It is right belief. It is knowing the right things about God. And the reason why we go to the scriptures is because the scriptures give us the truth about God. And you and I, it matters what we think. It matters what we think. It matters how we understand who God is. And does it matter if we know who made the world? Yes. Does it matter if we know whether or not the world is completely fine or whether or not the world is in rebellion against God? Yes. Does it matter if we know how to find union with God? Yes. Those things matter. Therefore, doctrine matters. Even the statement, everything in the end is ultimately about love, is a doctrinal statement. You're making a statement about truth. You're saying love is the ultimate doctrine. So that's, you can't escape it. You cannot escape it. And so, doctrine and right belief, I really want to encourage you to allow the Word of God to mold and shape your understanding more than culture does, more than I do, more than your parents did. No, the word of God is what molds our belief system, so our doctrine. And then there is orthopraxy. The Bible then also molds and shapes how I live, how I act, how I treat, how I respond with the words of my mouth, um, how I spend my money and my time. The Bible is what sets that agenda. And by the way, what sets that agenda, and, and this is what I love about it, um, it, is, it is not just what I do, it is what I think, and yet I think what I do, and I do what I think. So it's this wonderful weaving together, more than just chicken and egg. Um, it's, it's this wonderful, as I know more about God, I live more um, appropriately in his presence, and then as I live more appropriately in his presence, I gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of who he is. And it, it, it literally, it, it feeds on itself. So then why is the Bible so hard to understand? Because I think it's fair that we ask and answer that question. Number one, I believe the Bible is hard to understand um, because the Bible, and we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, in a few moments here, because the Bible was written at a time and to people that are now since long gone. And so much of the Bible is like watching the BBC. I think we're going to need subtitles for this, honey. You guys any watch any BBC shows? I mean, they're even speaking English. And yet they're saying some things, and Andrew and I go, what did they just say? What did, what did, uh, what did Ross, we watch Poldark, what did Ross just say, okay? And so it's like we either have to rewind it, and so sometimes the subtitles are going to help. Why? Because the truth is we don't, I don't really know what's going on in the late 1700s in England. They're talking about things and saying things, and I I don't quite get it all. And so a bunch of it, I promise you, I bet if you watched it and you were from England and you had a a deeper sense of English history, you would get a lot more out of the show, wouldn't you? And so let's be honest. One of the reasons why the Bible comes to us and we don't quite get it, and it's hard for us to understand, is because we just, it wasn't written to us First and foremost, it was written to Israelites who lived thousands of years ago. It was written to people that lived in Rome thousands of years ago. And so that distance creates this gap in our thinking. And therefore, it is difficult for us to understand it. So the Bible is, in parts, hard to understand. If you remember last week, I kind of closed by saying that the Bible actually is clear. And I'm, I'm not saying it's not clear, but I'm saying it's clear and there are some parts of it that are unclear. Here's how I described it last week for those of you that missed. Any confusion as to who died on the cross. Any confusion as to whether or not he raised from the dead. Any confusion, there really isn't. And so on the major things, do we work our way to God so that he loves us or do we believe by grace through faith? The Bible actually really is clear. On the major pieces, it is clear and for the last, say, 2,000 years of church history, and even before that, the church has been rather united on the major doctrines, even across denominational lines. And, and, and I think too much is made of our disagreements, where there is really a lot that, that, that aligns itself. And so there is that, which is easy to understand, but then The older we get and the more mature we become, the more we delve into the deeper parts of Scripture, and now we want to know not just that we are saved by grace through faith, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be saved by grace through faith? What does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? Does that mean that he died like in our place for our sins, and then we begin to delve deeper? Does it mean that God's wrath is against us, that God, because of our sinful nature, That God's wrath needed to be satisfied? That's a deeper theological question. And there are two words, both found in the Greek New Testament. One is the word that we translate expiate, and the other one is that we propitiate. One talks about a payment for penalty. The other one talks about a payment for penalty in which the wrath is appeased. And scholars begin to debate this. Okay, I would argue that that idea, I, I still find it rather clear, but I know that that is a debatable point. How does baptism fit into the role of salvation? That's a debatable point, okay? The Bible, even in the book of Acts, describes, A, mean, I I don't know anybody that goes, it has nothing to do with it. I mean, truly, the church has never, in an orthodox way, believed that. But exactly where it fits in, that is where different churches may have some disagreement. And so we get that the Bible comes to us, and the Bible has certain parts that are difficult to understand. And then it has other parts that are very clear to understand. And I would, I would hope that as you are growing in your faith and as you're growing in your understanding and as you're doing that in an orange way, meaning bestowing this understanding on those around you as you and your wife are growing in your faith and then you and your wife are helping your children grow in their faith and then you're helping your grandchildren grow in your faith and you're in a life group and you're helping others grow in your faith that you can begin to recognize I can differentiate between that which is clear and that which is a little more Um, a little less clear like I can begin to differentiate I I remember hearing my grad professor say um, and, and now he's in the presence of Jesus so I envy him much but Dr. Lowry would say that the older I get and the more mature I get I know more and more about less and less I know more and more about less and less and I love that he just said Jim the things that I believe that I really believe I believe them like I've never believed them before and then all whole bunch, I, everything looked so level to me, like everything was the same. And I'm beginning to see, like, the text, even the text, Jim, would you, well, you probably need to talk to more than anybody else, but even the text seems to want to accentuate certain doctrines over others. Doesn't it? It really does. The, the Bible seems to want to lift up Jesus. The Bible seems to really want to lift up, like, some key ideas about what Jesus accomplished and what Jesus did. And so to try to be, treat the Bible flat just isn't actually very true. So let's talk about some obstacles, and, and this one will be addressed a little more next week, so I don't want to try to answer it, but I want you to be aware of it. Um, Bruce Metzger says, you must never make the Bible mean what it says. All you can do is allow the Bible to mean what it means. That's kind of a fun statement. Bruce Metzger is a, a New Testament scholar, now also gone on to be with the Lord. But it's, it's, you're not trying to make the text mean what it says. What, basically what it's trying to point out at is that when you look at the Bible and you go, well, what does it say? It says that. And then you want to, try to, you want to try to imply, well, since it says that, it has to mean that. And we're going to see that that actually is not a good way of looking at the Bible. I hear, people, I hear Christians say that all the time, but that's what it says. I go, I know that's what it says. My question is, but is that what it means? So, for example, I'll give you a great, a great, a great example of this. In, in Exodus chapter 32. The Bible says that the Lord, depending upon the translation, a couple of different options here. In English, by the way, um, we need to go back to the original Hebrew word, but in English you have one or two options. One is, and then the Lord repented and did not bring this against Israel, or the Lord changed his mind and did not bring this against Israel. And if you tried to then build a case, well, then obviously God changes his mind, and then therefore God doesn't know the future, and therefore the future is, I would argue, yes, that's what the text says. But I would argue that's not what the text means. And there's many of those. There's many of those that actually come into play. And so that's why a little more study can be very, very helpful in terms of what we're actually looking at. So the number one issue uh, or an obstacle to understand and apply the Bible is a lack of motivation. A lack of motivation that exists, and I would say this, there are some reasons why um, we might not find that motivation. One of them, if we're going to be honest, is a lack of maturity on our part or immaturity on our part. Um, Many of us become deeply satisfied with what I will call the basic teachings of Scripture and almost feel no reason to move beyond them. And by the way, if your desire is to be a know-it-all, well then I'd, I'd rather you not be. If your desire is to show everybody else that you're right and they're wrong, well, then you're right, or Paul is right. Um, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. But if, if your desire for that is just because you don't want to spend the time or the effort to know the deeper things of God, the Bible actually, Paul warns about this. Paul says you, you should be eating like solid food now, but instead you're just like children. You just want milk. That's just not the way it should be. So Paul looks at the issue of maturity and says, listen, uh, we should be able to move beyond the basic teachings. We should be able to talk about the deeper things about God now. Why aren't we able to? And the answer is, well, I just don't know if I care that much about it. It's not like, you know, fantasy football or how to do scrapbooking. It's not like, it doesn't have eternal importance, right? There are, this is what I love to point out, there are things that will grab our attention, there are things that are very motivational for us. And one of the questions that I have is, is the Bible that for you? Does the Bible carry with it? One of the things, and I would even tell you, um, one thing that can be helpful on this, that um, it's, it is helpful to be around at some time in your life around other people that are motivated to read the scripture. You'd be amazed at how much it encourages you. I'm grateful for a father that just loves reading the scriptures. I think that had more to to do with my love for the scriptures than I ever really understood or knew. And I was somehow picking it up even when I wasn't really picking it up. You know what I mean? It was something almost that I admired and that I had to kind of catch up later on in my life. But my dad, just when he came to Christ, loved the word and just And it was helpful for me to actually see that. So I would encourage you to be surrounded by people like that and begin to see the maturity in them and then to seek to move beyond the basic teachings. Number two, there can be something, an an insensitivity. Um, There really can be just a a lack of um, awareness, which by the way, this can be a sign of immaturity as well, but just an insensitivity um, to the truths about God where you find yourself actually stubbornly trusting Your false ideas. I've I've met people like this. They don't want to hear deeper truths. They don't want to find out that their favorite verse doesn't mean that. They don't want to deal with that. They don't have a sensitivity to want to know the truth. In the end, they, they don't have that in them. And I would say that to want that, to have a desire... For, um, have a sensitivity to want to know the truth no matter where it leads. I read a a tweet earlier today that I thought was really kind of fitting for this. Um, uh, It was describing, might have been either the Apostle Paul. It was describing somebody in the Bible. I can't remember what it was, but the idea was this. They pursued the truth until the truth led them to Jesus. And that's kind of what I would encourage you to do. Keep pursuing the truth. And in the end, you'll find where the truth will ultimately lead you. And that's the, that's the beauty of it. The, I need to be sensitive to falsehood. I need to be in pursuit of the truth so that I don't want to stay in, like, a false understanding of something. Because, uh, by the way, our false understandings about God or about ourselves are pretty comfortable, aren't they? Like, I don't want to hear the truth about it. I don't want to know the truth. It's kind of like, yeah, probably should go to the doctor to see about this, but I don't want to find out that it's bad. What did you just say? Like, I don't want to have to go and actually hear that my understanding about what I need to do. I don't want to know about how much Jesus needs to take complete control of my life or of my finances or of my time. I don't want to know that. And that's a lack of sensitivity in terms of knowing the truth. And then lastly, I think out-and-out rebellion. There's a lot of people that just, I know, I, I, I hear this. It's amazing that they say this to me, but I I hear this actually quite a bit. I know what the Bible says, but I don't care. But they'll tell me they're still a believer in Jesus. And that's where I kind of start get a little bit lost and the room starts to spin for me. Like, I don't understand this. Like, you know what the Bible says, but you don't care. You know what the Bible's asking you to do and you're not gonna do it. And you're fine with that. And so one of the reasons why people don't pursue the Bible is because I've just flat out rebellion. I know what it's going to say, and I don't want to have to deal with that, and I'm, I'm not changing. So let's be aware. So, and, and one of the things that I love to do, I do this with staff or, to, you know, whenever we get into groups, I love asking people, like, which one are you most guilty of? Immaturity, insensitivity, or rebellion? What are some of the obstacles that are that are kind of approaching you? Why is it that you're where, where is your weak spot? I think that can help you be honest, and then you pray with the Holy Spirit to kind of help you. Another major obstacle, which I'm going to address here, is in, in a moment, but is literally the problem that you don't have a method. I remember when I was in graduate school, and I'd already taken classes on biblical methods of, of, of interpretation, but I'd never been asked to write it out. And so a piece of paper was handed around to everybody in this class, and they said, I want you to write down how you study the Bible. Okay are you asking i just write down exactly how your what's your what is your um your, your hermeneutic meaning your interpretive plan like tell me how that works and i just still remember the whole class going i don't quite understand what you're asking what do you mean how do i study the bible yeah like i just want you to write down like like where do you where do you go to study like what what book do you choose you know dr larry broke it down for us what book do you choose why did you choose that book when you begin to look at it, what is your what is your what is your plan? Do you just start reading? Then write that down. I just start reading, and then what do you do? I just read till I stop, and then what do you do? I kind of think thoughts loosely, and then pray, and then go to lunch. You know, and it's kind of like then I then write that down. What do you do? And it was really humbling. And 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 here's the here's the part that I would tell you is you might go, I don't really have a method of interpreting. No, you actually do. It's just a really really bad one. Like, we all do. We all have a method of interpreting. So I love to ask, like, why are you reading the Bible books that you're reading? And I I would say a a little intentionality wouldn't be a bad thing. And then when you do, like, where where do you start? I start at the beginning. Okay, that probably is a good way to start. So chapter 1, verse 1, how much do you try to break off at a time? Like, what are you looking for when you open that up and you read a verse? What do you do? Do you stop after every verse or do you read, like, 10 verses at a time? What do you do? When you come across a word you don't know, what do you do? When you come across a sentence you don't understand, what do you do? Well, wow, this is you're making it more hard than it needs to be, right? So obviously I'm on the science side, but let's be honest. One of the reasons why, um, for those of you, Tim, wake up, you'll love this. So it's golf, Okay, and so I, I'm a hockey player, right? And so I, this is how you hold something and you take a slap shot and you swing your back foot and, and that's how you take a, a good shot or a wrist shot, a snap shot, I know all those things because that's hockey. In golf, I, I did not know that you don't just smack it. So I'm, I've, I'm, I, I read a whole book on the grip, on how, to, on how to grip a club and so I learned that and then a buddy of mine who was a really good golfer, I told you about him when we had lunch the other day, but a buddy of mine who's a really good golfer taught me that what I was doing was I was taking every club and then I would like compensate the club so that I was hitting everything kind of like a one iron. So instead of letting like the nine iron, like you know it's got this like this, and then you want to kind of slide underneath it and let, let it lift, I would take a nine iron and get it way out here and then just smack it. And the guy looked at him and he said, that's why you're the worst golfer I've ever seen. <laughs> like let the club sit on the ground. Do you see that natural way that it's supposed to? Now hold the club. Oh, that's what's going on. I get it now. So the, the tilt on the thing is the trajectory. That's good. You guys are smart who figured out golf, right? And, and he looked at me, Derek did, and he was just too kind to ever just go, you are dumb, right? He was too kind to ever say that to me. But I remember standing at this golf course in Macomb, Illinois, and I remember just yelling, Paradigm shift! Like I would never see holding a golf club the same way again, ever. Like everything changed. And I think that for those of you that totally get what I was saying, um, that is the same thing with the Bible. You look at the Bible and all you know how to do is treat it like a hockey stick. Every time. All you know how to do is treat it like every other book. You don't really have a method. And so you find yourself just, um, for me, I would use like a one on the off the tee, and then I would use, it didn't matter what club I used because I treated them all the same, right? And then so I would, I would literally have like a four iron, and I'm like two feet from the green, and I'm still smacking it as hard as I can. And it, so every once in a while when I would connect, I would have to be chasing this ball very, very, very far. It's like, Your method is broken, and that's what we're going to address here tonight, is that what is the the better way for us to do it? Now, one of the method pieces that I want to look at is what are you looking for, first of all? So if you go down to this next one, what what are we looking for? Well, we're going to answer the question, like, where does meaning come from? And by the way, this is a hot debate. Um, It's not that they didn't think about it for a thousand years, but for, for, for much of human history, We just believed, are you ready for how crazy they were? Uh, You know, just so not intelligent. People actually believed for hundreds of years that when someone wrote a note to somebody else, that the person who wrote the note was trying to convey an idea to the people that were reading the note and that I was the one that, as I was writing the note, was trying to convey to Andrea that I love her and that I care about her when I wrote, I love you and I care about you. And so if you were to say... Where does that meaning come from? They would say, well, the author. Like, Jim wrote the note. And by the words that he used, Andrea could pick up the note, I love you and I care for you. And Andrea could understand that Jim meant I love you and I care for you. That was kind of the way that it worked. Okay? Now, recently, what we've done, and when I say recently, about the 1600s, something happened that was very interesting. So you've got, I'm just going to say there are two basic ideas. One is that the author is the one that decides meaning. And you'll see why this is going to be valuable. The second one is that the reader is the one that chooses meaning. Okay? There's a, there's a third option, but we'll, we're, for the, tonight I'm just going to deal with this. So the author versus the reader. So um, when the police decide to put a maximum 55 sign on the side of the road, right, I'm supposed to be able to read that and figure out what they mean. Maximum 55. I wonder what they mean. Right? When you read like the rules on, 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 on how to take medication, on what the dosage is, you should be able to go, well, this is what the FDA or whoever has decided, this is how the appropriate way of taking Tylenol or Advil, this is what we need to do. We read it, and it comes to us. It's text. It has an author. There's an intention, and we seem to be able to do that, okay? That's the way everything was kind of treated for most of human history. And then recently, they began to say, And and, and this is what's interesting. As this developed, as an expression, instead of it being, here is what I mean, Andrea, I love you, it was in the end art. So words are like art, like poetry. So in the end, it's, it's, it's not something that truly is like, It's it's not as clear as Jim wrote this, and Andrea reads it, and what Jim meant, Andrea understands. What if writing is kind of like a picture? So what do you see in the picture? What do you see? And when that happened, when that shift began to happen, and when art began to get lifted up, people began to look at text like art. And so how many of you, when you look at a movie or something, how many of you feel like you've got the liberty To like a piece of work, of art, or to not like a piece of work, to read into it. You know what that piece of art says to me? You you see where I'm coming from on this? You know what that does to me? You know what the emotions that evokes in me? So it's funny because in film, this is a big deal. In film, they love to say, okay, we're trying trying to stir up emotions. We're not trying to answer anything. And yet, I would argue that's not totally true. If I were to say to you, so what, you know, the, the, movie, the, the movie Titanic, what's that movie about? And if I said to you, oh, it's a metaphor of the stock market crash in the early 1900s. You had this big ship known as the U.S. or even the world economies, and it's, it's sailing, and they're really not paying attention, and then all of a sudden there was this terrible thing, and people died, and so in the end, that's really what the Titanic is. It's a metaphor for the stock market crash. Anything else? <laughs> yeah? Like it's, um, it's actually like a story about a boat <laughs> that they built that was sailing like literally from one place to the other, and it sank, and people died, like real people died, right? So which is it? And the answer is the Titanic is a real event. It's a real story. It's not... It's not designed for you to just interpret it any way that you want. It's not, it's not meant to be that way. And yet, have you ever been in a Bible study? And this is how you know how much this idea that we are the ones determining what the, what the, what the text means instead of letting the author tell us what it means. We're kind of free to decide what we want. How many, of you been, how many of you have ever heard the statement in a Bible study, and you read a verse and then you go, well, what does this verse mean to you? How many of you have ever heard that said before? Yeah, every single one of us. What does this text mean to you? And, and, and some person says, I think that text, and then they describe what it means. That's awesome. Okay, next. And somebody says something totally opposite. Wow, isn't that, isn't that amazing how the Bible means opposite things at the same time? Wow. Wow, like only God could do that. That's, that's honestly, that's foolish talk. Like it, it can't mean contradictory things. And by the way, it's usually like, it's usually not contradictory things like God loves us and hates us. It's, it's usually not like that. It's so personalized. So one of the things I enjoy doing in my class is when I would teach this is I would ask students, okay, share your favorite verse of scripture. And they would share their favorite verse of scripture. And I'd say, well, why is that your favorite? And they would describe some big reason as to why it's their favorite. And then I would lovingly say, I don't mean to upset you, but what if, what if I told you that's not what the text meant? I'm not saying that, by the way, that's not, that might even be a biblical truth that you're taking from another text. But that's that text that you just mentioned, and then that, it does not mean that. And what if I could show you that it does not mean that? And so I would actually have every student write down, what, what is your life verse? And it's usually about 80% of the class would be basing their life verse on a misunderstanding of a verse. Now, honestly, let me me say this, though, to be very, very clear. They still had biblical truths that they were holding on to. That God loves me and cares for me no matter what. Biblical truth. (laughs) Just, can I give you a better verse for your life verse? That's what I would say. Can I give you a better verse for your life verse? What if, what if I could tell you that that idea is true, but you're looking for it in the wrong spot, okay? And, and can I tell you why this really matters to me? This really matters to me because I don't know if you know this. Actually, I think you all know this. We are, we are increasingly finding, particularly young people who are going off to college and going off to places of higher learning, and they are getting their lunch handed to them because their, their, their professors are doing a similar thing and then not giving an explanation as to how they got there. And then they just feel like their youth minister is an idiot, and their mom and dads are idiots, and faith is kind of like Santa Claus and the tooth fairy. And you know what? Um, I'm just going to take that Jesus was a nice guy and just go on from there, become involved in social justice issues, right? Because I really do care about people. I just don't believe in any of that Jesus stuff anymore. And why are they doing that? Because we decided to allow people to let this be whatever they wanted it to be. And I really think that's where we got into trouble. was we, we, took a, we took a soft version of it, and then it couldn't stand the scrutiny. And that's one of the reasons why that insensitivity to the truth and not really caring much about the truth is, many, is one of the biggest reasons why our young people in particular are missing the boat on um, having a very strong faith when they enter college. Okay? And I'm not, I'm not talking about, yeah, let's get into fights with our college professors. I'm not even saying that. But I wanted to prepare my sons particularly so that when someone gave them a difficult question to answer, I had already voiced that with them. So I doubt if any college professor could ever say anything to my kids, where they're going to go, uh-oh, Dad never told us about this. I want you to be prepared. I want you to know about how the Bible should be used and used properly. So basically, the idea is that what you and I are going to be going for is not what you and I want it to mean or you and I think it means. That is an honest temptation that we all have. But if there is an author, and the author meant to convey something, then we call it going for the aim. And we're aiming at the author's intended meaning. Which means I need to reconstruct to the best of my ability, actually both plural and possessive, the author's intended meaning is what I'm going for when I'm looking at a book. So therefore, I need to have a method that lines up with that. Let me, let me address one more thing before we go into the, uh, into the specifics. The first one is this, that there is a difference between meaning and, and, and uh, did I put it as significance? No, application. Meaning and application. So if you've noticed how often I use the phrase, understand and apply, it's that same idea. So the Bible doesn't have, or a Bible verse doesn't have a bunch of different meanings. Now, meaning is actually singular. This is what the Bible verse means. This is what the text means. This is what Paul meant when he said that. It has one meaning. It is singular. But the beauty of the Bible, and this is where you know we kind of get it half wrong, we just didn't explain it well, that's why I love the idea I tell my students, you need to show your work. That's why, why you don't really know math by just giving the right answer. You've got to be able to show your work. To show your work says that the Bible does have multiple meanings, or, or sorry, multiple applications of its single meaning. Multiple applications of its single meaning. What that basically says is, is that when Paul says that we should greet one another with a holy kiss, he meant greet one another with a holy kiss. But we don't do that. Okay, well, we might apply it differently, but we get what he's saying. And so when Jesus tells us what we should do, then we say, okay, this is exactly what Jesus meant. Now, how do we apply that today? So when the the Apostle Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, what does he say? Well, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we can begin to take that same text and ask, I wonder if that answers a lot of questions about how we may try to substitute the role of the Holy Spirit in guiding and directing us with other substances. See how that verse can have multiple applications? But it has one particular meaning. And when we begin to divide that up, one of the great values for this is that when I try to help people understand that there aren't, most people believe that everybody, you know, there's all these different interpretations. When you really sit down and look at it, there are less divergent interpretations than you think. But there are still divergent applications, okay? And that becomes a a, a very significant issue. And so are what Tom and Jim arguing over are different ways to apply Acts 2.36, and the answer is yes. Tom and Jim apply that text different, okay? But they both believe the exact same thing in terms of what Peter meant when he said, believe, in, uh, believe and repent and be baptized. Uh, kind of the description of what people should do when they, when they, when they come to faith. Uh, be baptized each and every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that text has a much more uh, robust application to it that you and I can discuss, but it has a very specific meaning or interpretation of it. So let's uh, spend our last few moments kind of walking through what the specific steps are. And by the way, um, this hopefully is a refresher for many of you. And for those of you where it's not, there is a whole lot more that we have even available for you to kind of walk you through each of these steps. But the purpose of this is not actually to kind of give you everything, but to give you an overview so that maybe you can find out maybe some areas where you're, where you're missing and then to move on from there. So in terms of this three major steps or moves... When you're trying to understand and apply scripture, is to break down what you're actually doing when you're looking at the Bible into three different uh, three different three three different movements, I guess, so to speak. The first step, which is often overlooked, is the step known as observation. One of the best things that you can do by looking at a text is making observations. What do you see in the text? What is happening in the text? Did you notice this? Did you notice this? Did you notice this? Because you'd be surprised at what you don't know. I would have students and they would literally have to come up with 10 different observations, sometimes a question, sometimes a, a, a statement about that when you go, wow, I didn't even realize I should think that much about it. You tell me I should do this for each verse? And I would say, if you really want to kind of get a hold of it, then yeah, that might not be a bad thing to do occasionally. Pick up 10 verses of scripture, sit down, and just instead of just assuming that you know everything... Kind of play with the text a little bit. Don't just assume that you already know. Go back and like the old Kellogg's Corn Flakes commercial, try it again for the first time. Go back and take a look at it. I remember being shocked at this repeated statement from God to um, to Abraham in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, God said, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And I'm just kind of just flying through that. You know what I never stopped to recognize? It wasn't his only son. He had another son at the time. But when I'm reading it, I never even, wait a second. So God, and what God is saying here, by the way, he's not saying that Ishmael's not his son. But in the context here, he is kind of saying Ishmael's not the son. Ishmael's not the son of promise. Oh, wow, that kind of shapes it. So instead of this really being a story about a dad who has to give up his son who he loves and he won't be able to play baseball with him, which is kind of how I like to interpret the text because that's how I like to see things from my perspective, there's actually something much deeper. So when God tells Isaac to put, or God tells Abraham to put Isaac on the altar, this is the same child that God promised through this child, you'll become the father for many. Wow, this is a really test of Abraham's faith. This isn't just a dad who loves a kid. This is that kid who is the ultimate promise that Abraham kept getting wrong and God is now asking him to put that on the altar and the whole text took on a different flavor. Why? By breaking it down and just making some observations. You'd be surprised what you can see When you open up your eyes There's a great example in one of the hermeneutics textbooks By It's a a conversation that happens Between Sherlock Holmes and Watson And Sherlock Holmes says to Watson He says, oh, I know that you can see But you don't observe very well Like your eyes are open Like you can see, but you're not observing How many of you have heard like a good Bible teacher Maybe even occasionally me But a, a really good Bible teacher And they seem to see things in the text That you don't see Anybody else know what I'm talking about? man, I didn't see that. You know where they get that from? From hard work and observation. I really believe this is where there are people who are like freaky gifted at it, (laughs) but I've learned to become better at it. This isn't something I just do naturally. And by the way, I'm I'm not talking about making up stuff that's in the Bible. I'm talking about seeing stuff that's in the Bible. There's a difference. I'm not talking about being creative. I'm talking about doing the hard work and, 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 and slugging through that. You'd be, you'd be surprised what's in your Bible if you opened up your eyes and, and spent that time in observation. The second major move is that next move, which is the interpretive move, which is, okay, now I'm going to write down what it means. One of the best things that you can do is to look at a section of Scripture, say Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's a great text to do it with. And then to say... Either verse by verse, but kind of sometimes I like to write, what would be a summary statement for this? In one sentence, explain what Paul is saying there. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been forced to just, what is Paul saying here? And Interpret that, 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 that section. Interpret that verse in your own words. I, I profess you to always say that. Say that in your own words. How would you say it? What is he saying there? Meaning, What is he meaning there, right? What is he, what is he meaning there? Have you ever had to do that? That is good. And then here's the beauty of it. Okay, when you're doing that interpretive step, if you, if you try to interpret without observing, see how silly that is? So who's guilty of the crime? Tom. How do you know? Because I just thought of him. Like, you're not gonna, you don't want to look at the evidence, Jim? No, I don't want to look at the evidence. That'll just confuse me. It might prove it's not Tom. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, we want the evidence so I would say to students, okay, so what is your favorite verse? They would read to me a verse, Jeremiah 29:11. That was a very popular verse. Okay, so Jeremiah 29:11. what does it mean? Well, you know what it means, and then they would look up. I go, why are you looking at me? Well, because I'm talking to you. Yeah, I don't, I don't. look down and tell me what it means. Deal with the text. Deal with the words in the text. Deal with it. That's what I want you to do. So to try to interpret without observing is just foolish. At best, you will just... You will just say what you already think that you know. Which, by the way, if you have it right, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. Don't trust that everywhere you go. Don't trust what I say. Okay? Be like the wonderful Bereans in the Bible when Paul, the apostle, was done speaking, and I think Luke is lifting them up as a great model. After Paul was done speaking, you know what they said? We're gonna find out whether or not you're telling us the truth because we're gonna go back and look at the scriptures. That's what they said. And Paul doesn't go, how dare you challenge? Paul went... Go, search the scriptures. That's exactly what I want. I get, we get so excited when people are thinking about joining our church. We've got membership Sunday coming up, and um, I love it when people want to come in and they want to talk about what we believe and why we believe it. I don't, I don't feel like challenged in a bad way. I feel like excited in a good way. But let's interpret what we observed, and then lastly, let's remember that that last move is so critical, and that is the application of the Bible. We need to apply the Bible. So great we understand what it means. Great that we know that once a person believes and repents that they should be baptized. Great. Question. Have you been baptized? That's a, I don't want to know what you what you what you know you should do. Are we are we doing it? Right? And so there must be an application. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to forgive my wife. Okay, are you forgiving her? That's the it's the application of that that ultimately matters. And if it's not then your faith is broken. James is right when he says, like, faith without works is dead. And he's not, by the way, arguing for some kind of alternative way of being saved. He is describing the natural outflowing of faith. Read the book, of, read Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah built a boat. By faith, Abraham offered Isaac. By faith, over and over and over and over again. So, an understanding of scripture should naturally lead us to a proper application, okay? One thing I'll say, because I'm not gonna say it anywhere else, um, can I tell you that it's a good thing to not to do this alone? By the way, I'm not saying that you can't spend some time alone, but people, um, cults and false doctrines are usually developed in isolation. Someone has a revelation of scripture and they don't have, they don't have, it, it's not tested by the whole council of Scripture. That's why, how many times have you heard me said, Word of God, Spirit of God, people of God. Word of God, Spirit of God, people of God. This is what we go by. Word of God, people of God, Spirit of God. And if I come to you with an idea, and it has not been tested by other godly men and women, if it does not stand under the scrutiny of the last 2,000 years of church history, then I, 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 I beg you, do not listen to me. If I come with some, Paul says to the Galatians, if an angel were to appear, an angel of light were to come and give you a doctrine or a teaching other than the one that we gave you, let him be accursed, condemned. Okay? So we, we should never go off by ourselves and try to accomplish this. Almost every major dangerous way of living. Even Martin Luther, okay, we're we're kind of in that 500 year, so it's a big deal right now. You realize Martin Luther did not attempt to split the church. Martin went to the church with his ideas. Martin went to the church. Um, This deeply concerns me where we're not lining up with Scripture. And he is begging them and pleading them and hey, he was not comfortable in doing this. And in the end, he stood on Scripture. So be very careful Um, you don't want to be the person who just kind of with blinders on, no, this is what it means, and I don't want to hear anything else. That is a very dangerous way to, to live. So, obviously, we got to work through our presuppositions. And so I'm going to just kind of give you this statement by Larry Osborne. I love this. The goal of biblical interpretation is to bring about an active and meaningful engagement between the interpreter and the text in such a way that the interpreter's own horizon is reshaped and enlarged. So you and I have ideas about marriage, do we not? I mean, it's fascinating. Um, the older I get, the more that I I I, I find our uh, our absolute blind obsession with what we label as love as the primary and only way by which all marriage should begin and 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 eternally be like. Somehow, this has always been going on, right? By the way, I'm not saying we shouldn't love our spouses. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I hear about people, especially as I get to travel around the world, and I hear about cultures that have arranged marriages. And I come back to, and by the way, it would freak me out to think about an arranged marriage. So I'm with you, I get it, okay? It would freak me out. But that's only because I become so indoctrinated that Jim Johnson knows what's best for his life. And I know better than my parents know. I know better than you know. I better know know better than anybody. Where'd you get that idea from? That's just the way it is. Isn't that universal? No, actually. That's actually, this idea of like following in love and getting married is about 200 years old. Before that time, people actually thought, I'm not smart enough to figure this out on my own. It's so fun li- you know, living with Taysir for four years. Taysir didn't feel capable of making that decision for himself. He really thought his mom and dad, uh, actually his dad left, his mom should be de- and his sisters should be deeply involved in, in helping him pick his wife stupid because you know here's the good news the good news is, is that ever since you know for the last especially the last 40 or 50 years we've been marrying for love and look how it's just fixed everything all our marriages are good now and there's no more divorce it's almost stopped it's amazing now that we marry now we just we've created new problems haven't we so when when that happens that really begins to show you how deeply embedded ideas are in our thinking and then we read them into the text. How many of you, when you read Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. How many of you bristle at one of those and the other one just seems natural? Me? I hear that word, wives submit to your husbands, and it just kind of, am I gonna to have to say this to a group of women? I don't know if I wanna do this. They're not gonna understand. I mean, not a, I mean, I don't mind explaining it, I just don't wanna be misunderstood. It's okay, and then you begin to understand, Like, but why do you feel that way? Culturally speaking, and you've heard me say this before in Ephesians, when that was first read, the shock was not wives submit to your husbands, but husbands love your wives. Why should I love her? This was a contractual agreement between me and her father. So what do you mean love my wife? What do you mean like put her interests above my own? That's crazy. That's how it would have been heard in Ephesus. Everybody would have went, well, sure, a wife's going to submit to her husband. What other, how, else would the, how else would the relationship work? But you're saying that the husbands, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Husbands are supposed to love their wives? Do you realize that shift that's happened in the last few thousand years? So there's so many presuppositions that are coming down upon us. That's why this is such a critical aspect. That's why we got to open up our minds when we read the scriptures. Three quick things I want to show you, and then we're going to be done. First one is the idea of literary context. You know what this is. It is reading a, a, a section of the Bible knowing that the verses and the paragraphs and the sentences around it explain what a word means, or what a sentence means, or what a paragraph means. When you One of the reasons why we did a podcast on this recently, one of the reasons why we love to walk through large sections of scripture because it's more difficult for Jim to manipulate it. I can take one verse and make it say whatever I want it to say by, by ripping it out of its context. I could literally do that. But if I I can't do it if I have a whole big story. Okay? So, the classic example, I, gave, I decided, I knew I'd run out of time. So, on the classic examples, Matthew 18 20, how many of you heard this? Where two or more are, or two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with him. You've heard me use this a million times. It's, a class, it's amazing. We use it all the time, and yet people still don't get it. What is that talking about? And for those of you that know, you read it in its context, it is describing church discipline. It begins with, and when a brother sins against you, you go to him. And you rebuke him, and if he listens, you've won your brother over. If he does not listen to you, then you will take him in front of the church. And then, if he does not listen to the church, then you will treat him as pagan or tax collector. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. Doing what? Standing in condemnation of a sinful brother or sister. That's the context. It's not Jesus is here because only Tim or Tom and um, uh, Tom and Jim showed up for Bible study. Well, at least there's two of us, Tom. That's not what the verse means. It means when Jim has to be asked to leave the church, the church shouldn't be afraid about it because the church is in agreement on this and then Jesus stands condemning me as well. That's what the verse is about. So use it for what it, it's needed, by the way. Next one. This goes back to the idea of trying to understand the historical context. Jeremiah 29:11, I know the plans that I have for you to not harm you, to, to bring about good. This is the great verse that everybody has. What is the historical context? So not just the verses around it, but what is the history behind it? The history behind it is, this is 597 B.C. This is a moment in Israel's history where Jerusalem is half destroyed and the rest of it is about to be destroyed. People are being dragged off into exile. People are suffering under God's judgment. People are asking a question, how could a God allow this to happen to his people who are now sent off into exile. What kind of God would do this? Jeremiah 29, 11. A God that has plans of ultimate redemption. A God that says, listen, what you don't see is what I'm doing to this whole nation. And I'm going to return you back to this place. I know the plans. Trust me. You need to go through this because you've been rebellious. But you need to trust me. I never hear anyone quote Jeremiah 29:11 like that. I just—it's—it's it's their way of having a blind optimism that tomorrow is going to be better. And then, by the way, when tomorrow doesn't get better, and then the next day gets worse, and then the day after that gets even worse, then they give up on God because Jeremiah 29:11 failed them. And you know why? Because we didn't explain the historical context. Let me let me explain to you what that verse actually means and find hope there. Okay. Lastly. This is, a, this is a key thing. It's known as genre awareness. It is important for you to realize that when you're reading a particular book of the Bible that you know what kind of book it is. So genre is, the literary genre will act as a covenant of communication. A fixed agreement between the author and the reader about how to communicate. That's by Dr. Kevin Van Hooser. He really does a great job kind of describing that as a covenantal agreement. So that when I'm reading, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. Oh, so I should move to Stillwater. By the way, Harry Birdwell actually used that verse on me to try to get me to come here. And I just, I remember sitting in my office going, tell me you're joking. (laughs) And he was. (laughs) But I just said, because I I either may need to come to kind of fix whoever taught you that or whatever. But that's not what it is. To lead you beside Stillwater and these green pastures and the Lord being a shepherd. Let me explain. This is a poem. And this is how poems work. And you need to understand, this is how this is history. You need to trust it. This is a story of Israel leaving. This is a historical book. We need to believe it as history. Don't treat history like a parable. And don't treat parable like history. Don't treat poems like somehow it's it's giving an account. I would even argue, don't treat the Gospels like you would David McCullough's John Adams. They're different books. They're different. Gospel is a genre designed to call people to faith. Don't just use it like a biography of Jesus. It's not. It isn't a, a biography of Jesus as you understand biography. John says, I write these things to you so that you might know and that by knowing you might believe and by believing you might have eternal life. That sounds different than what David McCullough is doing in his great book, John Adams. So when you look at a text like this, Revelation 6.12, when the sun became black like sackcloth and the moon turned full blood red, and then you read that like it's some scientific journal. Um, actually, this is apocalyptic. This is, this is figurative language. All the Bible's figurative? No. Just the parts that are clearly figurative are figurative. Right? And when we know that and we begin to understand that, now all of a sudden revelation comes alive. Psalm 23 comes alive. Um, Every book comes alive. And that's why it's critical. These are the three things I want people to know. Understand the verse in connection with the verses around it. Understand the story behind the verse, the historical background. And understand what kind of book that you're writing or you're, you're reading and studying. And when you know those three things, you'd be surprised at how much of the Bible you can understand. I'm going to leave it there. That's kind of where we're going to leave it, but that's not all that needs to be said. But it's all that needs to be said in this. I want to hopefully at some level whet the appetite or kind of restir the imagination so that you will treat the Bible in a way that it deserves to be fully understood and applied into your life so that God might be glorified and you find the life that he has designed you for. Go in God's peace. God bless.